Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the October 17, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Transparent Radio imagine social media outlets with all our private data operating similarly. And uh, just another matter, enough with this lurid coverage of the transgressions of a powerful Hollywood mogul. How about we direct our attention and energy toward the employees or the wish they were going to be employed that, are, that were maimed and they were overlooked by this malfeasant conduct of this mogul? They're someone's daughters, someone's sons. Can't we have their back? Teresa McQueen's interviews on this show have covered this. Check out my podcast at askaleader.com. On a different tack, at least $3,000 were collected over this last Sunday in pledges at the, for the Claire Trevor School of the Arts Performing Artists' lovely benefit for victims of Hurricane Maria, mainly Puerto Ricans. Today, on to the show, documentary filmmaker Angela Baca will return to talk about the topic of food sovereignty, and then Patrick Michaels, reporter with Reveal, Center for Investigative Reporting, has a definitive account of Orange County's complicated history with immigrant detentions. Orange County residents, Theo Lacey Jail is in a league of its own nationally. Take note on today's show. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. We're going to strike today an early Thanksgiving theme in this first segment with Navajo filmmaker Angelo Baca. Angelo's first interactions with food sovereignty with the Pacific Northwest coastal tribes who introduced him to the cultural, spiritual, and nutritional riches, variety, and benefits of traditional foods. Angelo Baca, an enrolled member of the Navajo and Hopi, produces quite remarkable and edifying fiction and nonfiction films. He was the director and writer for the documentary Into America, The Ancestor's Land, and more recently, Navajo Voices on Bears Ears or Shush Jaw. A graduate of Native Voices program at the University of Washington, Seattle, he's done numerous documentaries and collaborative works with other filmmakers. He completed his master's in communications at New York University. And recently he's taught at Brown University both Native American literature and Native American media film courses, brushing shoulders with the greatness of many, including his grandmother who brought him this essential lore. Angela pursues these research interests varying from this indigenous food sovereignty and Native American health and wellness to indigenous film and cinema to Native youth development projects. They can all come together, in, including indigenous international repatriation. His film work, Native Youth Cooking Show, is one installment of many in the the plan here for sovereign food. So I'm going to welcome Angelo back today. Angelo, where are you calling this one in from? I'm in from Texas right now. You're in Texas. Okay, yeah. big state. Where where exactly? Amarillo. Amarillo. Well, when Angela was last on the show, it was at the tail end of the Department of Interior's rather rapid comment period as 
Secretary of Interior Zinke was salivating over how much to carve out of the newly designated Bears Ears National Monument. I'll refer all to that show where Angelo and Native Rights Fund attorney Matthew Campbell spoke on my podcast dated August 1st. 2017. And after we talk about food sovereignty on regional and national levels, we'll ask Angelo to post us on Bears Ears National Monument status. So, Angelo, the food sovereignty, it begs your definitive explanation. Please tell us what, what it means for those who haven't put those words together before. Well, it actually depends on your perspective as an indigenous person, as a person in the food movement, or someone who is thinking of it more as a political statement. But I think for our purposes, the general food sovereignty term stems from early with the uh, movements in the 90s and even previous to that with the campesinos in Latin America Uh come together and make their communities be both politically and independently strong and were able to assert that not just their labor, but their food were, was something that was important for them to uh, defend and protect and make sure that it was recognized as something that was a body of knowledge that was significant and valid and deserved protection and respect. And I think a lot of communities have followed suit in that they've taken up their own traditional foods and medicines, begun to grow a lot of those again, and figure out what the knowledge was that was handed down from generation to generation and see how they're they're connected to these foods through stories and families and histories, different places that connect them to where they harvest them, where they gather, where they collect. And it's been kind of organically, if you want to use that word, growing again, back in ways that people hadn't really expected before. So you're getting more of a reintroduction to the foods in places that they've always utilized them and are finding out the nutritional benefits are vastly exceeding that of our current diet. If you take a look at what people are eating now, it's between 10 to 15 food groups. You know, we're really used to having carbohydrates and sugar and corn syrup and a lot of these preservatives that are fast food are packaged in. Uh, available for accessibility, and a lot of people just, you know, they eat a lot of these general groups of foods, but especially indigenous communities that, you know, grew, cultivated, collected, and hunted, and gathered all these different kinds of varieties of foods, they found that it was in the hundreds of different kinds of varieties of food. So the, you've heard this before with you know, doctors and nutritionists, the more varied, you know, diverse diet that you have, the healthier that you are because you have lots of different kinds of vitamins and minerals and nutritional foundation for your body. So when you go into the archaeological record and you see how Native people ate, you can see there are hundred kinds, hundreds of kinds of different varieties of food that they ate and give them a lot of health, strength, and long life. And as, you know, my food sovereignty friend, Valerie Seagrass in the Pacific Northwest, always says, you know, you look at the old photos and you don't really see, you know, a lot of uh, Indians with health problems, 
you don't see overweight Indians. You don't see people who are having struggles with uh, their diet because a lot of them had more access to their traditional foods, and that has changed in the last 100 years. You can see that it's impacting communities all over. But a return to that also means a revitalization of culture, of language, of foodways, ceremony, and a reconnection to the environment in a way that you just don't get today in today's food system. So when you were talking about asserting lab- the their labor and asserting uh, access to the food and all that, I guess it's an assertion of public health that is really uh, com- should be commanding our attention because, as you say, that right now it's like a, this crisis, this health crisis just blowing up under our eyes with the obesity and all the attendant problems of indigenous people. Yeah, and I think that's something uh, that, you know, of course is a problem, um, but you're, there's much, much more um, that has to do with having this reconnection to the culture and figuring out what kind of foods are very helpful for you. You know, it's in what today's culture we would call like superfoods. But for instance, in the Pacific Northwest, you know, nettles, stinging nettle in particular, if you make a tea out of that, you really help your kidneys. And so much, in fact, that you, you know, can improve the health of your kidney uh, to help reduce time on dialysis machine. And some people are realizing that's something that they've always harvested and used up there in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, nettle's high in everything, (laughs) vitamin C, magnesium, calcium, iron. It's like 400, 500% of your daily intake. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand that it's growing everywhere up there and they just ignore it. They don't pay attention to it. They think it's a weed, but actually it's really strong medicine and, that continues to be a dominant theme throughout all the communities, that food is medicine. So what you eat actually does help you out in your overall health. And I'm glad you're breaking this all down because mainly, I mean, in our sort of in the dominant culture that we're associating our food, we, we see it as something that's wrapped up in a tin, styrofoam, or foil or something like that. And so it's a, it's a leap for us to first think of the food in its original setting, where it's coming from, and we can talk about how that's going to be, it's being mapped and documented in a full-on effort around the Bears Ears National Monument, among other places. But so, but you're, you were talking about the stinging nettles properties, and there are also, I've heard some intriguing public health exposés with the ash from the blue corn mush and from juniper branches that are burned. Can you tell us about those attributes? Yeah, those are really funny um, because, you know, that's something I grew up with, and my grandmother made that pudding a lot. And, you know, we know that it has a lot of nutritional value, and we know that there's a significant chemical change, a reaction that happens when you use that ash. And, you know, beyond just this kind of science of it, I mean, it's also representative of the fire, and the fire is a blessing in the home. You know, it's protection against bad things. It provides light, provides heat. It's an essential element for life. And, you know, you're basically ingesting a part of that, and it's giving you life. So there is an element of the cultural integration of medicine from ingestion, but also from living around it in your life, in your environment. So I always thought that it was interesting that people are sort of 
you know, taking that up and looking at it scientifically. Because, again, that's traditional knowledge. It's something that we've always known. And the science is great to whatever back it up, but it's something that we have always utilized in knowing that, yeah, it's great calcium. It's great in unlocking the nutrients of the corn. It's a high potential for that to really get you through during hard times. And, you know, there's so many blessings that come from making these kind of traditional foods. And, you know, that's the Navajo pudding style of it. But we also have a kind for Hopi, uh, which is also part of my background. We call it peaky bread. And instead of just, you know, stirring it up kind of like a pudding soup sort of, you spread it over a hot rock. Uh And it's kind of this nice little thin, crispy, paper, wafer-like thin material, and you just fold it up and make it almost into like a shape of a burrito, and you it will dry up nice and crispy like that. And Angela, what's in, what is in that bread? It's the same, it's the same idea. You utilize that ash okay. to catalyze all of the nutrients and take down the acidity and balance the pH so that it is edible, but it also makes it highly nutritious. And so that's, I think, something I saw a few years ago on a um, PBS documentary okay. <laughs> that, you know, somebody oh, was actually looking at. And, you know, this is something like, well, yeah, we, we could have told you that. You didn't need this scientific guy to, like, be the expert and the authority of that. It's like, we have our traditional elders and our teachers, and they know all of this. It's just that the dominant culture doesn't really recognize them as valid knowledge holders. So it's been a struggle to kind of tell people, like, we are the original scientists. We have been here for a long time. We know where the places are to go. We know where the foods are and what's healthy for you and what's not. And, you know, if you just listen to us and take our lead and understand that we're caretakers and stewards of this place, then you'll understand that you can be fed by this and benefit too. So, Angelo, some other items we were talking about I was wanting to cover the attributes, too, of, of wild onions, sumac berries, pinyon nuts. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, those are all, again, very uh, highly nutritious foods. They're good for, you know, storage and movement and travel and are good in especially hard times because, you know, you don't really know um, from one season to another what things are going to be like. And so it's always important to have a storage of food some kind of uh, cache of, you know, things that you dry or gather, preserve. And so, you know, sumac is good. Sumac also, um, the red berries, we call it uh, chief chin, when you kind of grind it up into this kind of soup. It's super high in vitamin C. Um, uh, I think it's probably one of the things best to eat if you're not feeling well. And uh, a lot of people who are sick, and they don't feel like eating anything solid, that's something that they'll eat. And uh, kids love it especially because um, you can make it into a thicker or a lighter consistency depending on how much moisture you put into it when you grind it up. So you can make it like a soup or a pudding or really super thick and just spread it on a piece of bread. And if you're up to it, you know, you put a little bit of sweetness in it somewhere. And, you know, kids really love that. Right. So it's really great, and there's something about the ability of tooth chin also to really whiten your teeth. There's like oh. small little benefits, right? Yeah. So there are like really interesting things that 
are living on the landscape and have good interaction with human beings, and they give them, you know, they give each other gifts. Because in so many places, when you recognize that human beings and plants in particular have a relationship, you can see they become symbiotic, like sweet grass in the plains areas. A lot of those places benefit from people harvesting them because the areas that haven't been harvested and have been neglected and are kind of left alone, they don't do as well as those as when people are in there actually harvesting them. You know, they're probably there with good intention and prayer and harvesting them for medicine that will be used and the spirit of those uh, sweet grasses and recognize that and they, they benefit each other. So this is something where we also have to get around this whole concept of dominant culture's perception of preservation and conservation conservation, because it's not quite the same definition. It doesn't mean to lock people out or to like seal them off from the access of those wild places. It means that we would still visit them and we'd still take care of them, but we do so in a responsible way. And that's why the majority of the things that we see here, especially in the United States, are well-preserved and taken care of, like national parks and national monuments. And we are going to get into that more. Too. My guest, if you've just joined us, is Angelo Baca, Native American documentary filmmaker and advocate for Native American food sovereignty, the main topic for today. And I, I have to just note quickly that the when you talked about the symbiotic setting is that I know that the antidote, if somebody does get stung by those stinging nettles, the antidote is right next, growing next to it if, if we haven't, you know, totally flattened <laughs> the the turf there. So, it's, I mean, there's there's all these balancing acts going on if we just right. pay attention. So exactly. the importance then of the, the Bears Ears National Monument is the mapping effort there that's breaking down where everything is located. That's been going on since probably before the the long Obama comment period leading up to the designation of the U.S. National Monument there. So is there any kind of update on that inventory that's being taken, being taken around Bears Ears, Angelo? Uh, yeah, actually, there's been several meetings going on. I mean, we are moving ahead for the Bears Ears National Monument in land management planning with agencies. You know, despite what people see in the news and in the press, uh -huh. uh, nothing has happened. There's no reduction. There's no rescinding. They have intent to do that. But as of now, we're moving ahead. We're moving forward with that planning because we have the monument and we have people in place and plans that we would like to do to protect those places and, of course, you know, plants and animals and firewood, and all these things now that we're starting to study, uh, which will ultimately help us in communicating the importance of protecting that place. And one of those avenues that we're taking is our traditional food specialist, Cynthia Wilson, for Utah Denebikea, is starting this really amazing research project with the University of Utah, in which they're going to be going into Bears Ears and researching the wild potato that oh. was found there. And this potato is a game changer as far as what people were thinking of um, when potatoes arrived in the United States. Way, way earlier than anybody else had even anticipated. 
Uh, there's potato starch residues found in the crevices of these places in Bears Ears, you know, oh. near and around archaeological sites of ancient Pueblo peoples, especially in Escalante, moving into the Bears Ears area uh, about 10,900 years in the span between 11,000 and 9,000 years ago, which is way earlier than people thought potatoes oh, wow. ever showed up in the Americas. Just another piece of evidence that shows that we were very knowledgeable and had the ability to grow these foods to sustain us. And it wasn't that certain groups of people brought in these foods alone. There was a lot of trading. There was a lot of interaction, a lot of travel. Many, many people were in contact and communication with each other. And I think you can see that with Bears Ears even now today. We have the five intertribal coalition and we all know and claim heritage to that land, and we share it. And so similarly, we're really hoping that this new species that they're going to be researching, I think it's like Solon, Solonum jamesii is the, is the actual scientific name for that. For the wild potato um, could, or something could else? Something like that. That's the, I think that's the uh, scientific name that they're okay. going for, but they're doing it in conjunction with um, scientists there at the University of Utah. And it's really exciting news because our traditional foods person, Cynthia, has already found significant accounts with our tribal elders about this potato. Okay. So again, you have knowledge holders who knew about this already. This is nobody asked them. And so now this is going to be putting it on par with the rest of all these bodies of knowledge saying that traditional knowledge and science of plants and animals and people are something that we're, we're well-versed in. And we need the Bears Ears National Monument to continue protection of those places and those sites and the essential beautiful areas that are ecologically delicate that hold our, our wild foods. So that we can appreciate the progress being made, the move on into the essential resource management planning and protection. Angel, can you let us know, you're talking about the University of Utah collaborating along with its Department of Interior Art. Can you lay out all of the jurisdictions and agencies that are involved in this effort so we can really see this This is like a kind of a, a fact in the ground of a governmental process to, to really protect these resources? Yeah, well, the two key agencies, I think, that you want to keep in mind yes. the ones who are working with us are both the United States Forest Service. Okay. So they're very key in that. And they've um, always been, but it's still... And they've always been. Right. And, you know, they're they're really essential in kind of like the co-management piece in particular. But, you know, they've also been sort of waiting on directives from the higher-ups in the administration that's currently in place. And so... Everybody's kind of, it's a wait-and-see game, you know. We're not moving as quickly as we hope to, but it's sort of understandable given that everything from the top down in the country for this government is undergoing major changes, and, you know, people are shifting, and it's, it's very difficult to really put your finger on what's going to be happening next. So at least the, the talks are happening uh, slowly and deliberately, and people are making 
making good communications and relationships with people who are in those positions now. So there's a lot of folks there connected to the USDA, uh, Department of Environmental Quality. You know, we're trying to work with other parks people, monument folks. There's also, like, third-party involvement from conservation groups, uh, environmental folks. So there's a lot of collaborations happening beyond the five tribes, and that's really kind of the hard behind-the-scenes work that nobody sees. But it is happening, and I think it's happening for the better because, you know, there's not been a monument or a proclamation that has included indigenous peoples in the way that the Bears Ears one has. It's that so significant. It's significant. Wow, wow. Well, that's an important institutional sort of update that I want to make sure we covered as well because mm-hmm. I, I want to get back to the public health matter as we're wrapping this up. There are important messages that need to be communicated over the generations because I, Angela, I'm really kind of freaked out. Every time I see a kind of congregation of indigenous peoples, there's a lot of obese people in that setting. And it's how are you making a dent in this huge problem with the the sovereign food movement here, sort of the reengineering of, of the culture in among indigenous peoples? How How are you making this dent? You know, it starts really slowly, and I think the impact of traditional foods can be seen in the youth in particular. Um, you know, we did the Native Youth Cooking Show up there in Seattle, right, Washington. exactly. With a number of these kids, and that was their idea. It was their project. We asked them, what do you guys want to do? And they said, well, we never see ourselves as tribal people represented on the Food Network. And I thought, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and they're like, we want to do a Native Youth Cooking Show only we don't really know what to cook because we've never done it before. And so that was the entryway into going into all these communities and finding traditional food people like Valerie Segrist and all the folks over at Tulalip uh, Hip Hop Cultural Center and all these great community places that welcome them with open arms, reintroduce them back to their foods and let them see that they have a connection beyond just this one time of when they sit down and eat the food and taste it that they actually really connected with a lot that was centered around the food. You know, food is the heart of culture. It is where we all sit down, we talk with each other, we share stories, we feel comfortable. We're exchanging information, goods, services, improving relationships. There's a significant amount of all these connections that are being remade through that one film project that we did. And one of those events was the canoe journey that really helped out Uh vitalize the Pacific Northwest coastal culture. And that's what they did. You know, they all came in canoes. They would all go to one host community, and they would have songs and dances and stories and prayers, and they would feed each other. And the bounty, the amount of food that was there was incredible. Some of the biggest oysters, clams, salmon I've ever seen, and it's delicious, and it's good for you. And you just wonder, like, how could we be destroying these precious resources that are providing us with such good health and strength? And People don't have any clue living this other life of what they're doing and sacrificing by making a negative impact on those landscapes that could just easily provide for everybody. So it's really shifting the perception of our young people of this can help you, you know, in the long run, but also 
right now, like you actually are contributing to the revitalization of your tribal communities by participating in, you know, the resurgence of traditional foods. Asserting culture, asserting public health, and leading along in the Native American food sovereignty. That that's it's really remarkable work, and it. I do panic when I, I just, it's not just even in, with our indigenous people. Indigenous people all over the world are, are ballooning over the kind of convenient foods that's been, are being exported from our corporations here in the U.S. So, Angel Baca, thank you, though, for being on today's show. Yeah, and I thank you for having me as well. Um, we're going to be having our uh, first Native Food Sovereignty Conference at New York University on October 30th, and we're having a lot of great folks who will be presenting on their work there, too, including Sean Sherman, who's the sous chef, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hoover from Brown, who does our For Years Good Seeds website with me, and yes. um, Pete Jemison, who is the main uh, steward and groundskeeper of Ganondagan, which is a Seneca site in uh, New York. Okay. And they're part of the Iroquois White Corn Project. You know, Haudenosaunee corn, bean and squash is like the main staple, which basically provided a foundation for this country to begin. They were the model of democracy, of governance, of leadership, and how strong nations come into an alliance, and thus forming confederacy, and thus forming the United States. So, you know, without food, you have no nation, and I think they're a great example of how they made a great nation, and they still are, through their foods. All right. Well, that's, as we, we talked about before, this is the lead-off for the Thanksgiving gestures, and it's it's all about health and culture. They It's seamless, the, the two of them. Angela Baca, yes, Native American documentary filmmaker and advocate for Native American food sovereignty, thanks again for coming back on the show today. Thank you very much, Claudia. I appreciate it. All right. Standing with Bears Ears. All the best. Liberation Music Orchestra with uh, the kind of tone I want to leave you all with. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Patrick Michaels, who is a reporter for Reveal, that is the Vaunted podcast coming at us from the Center for Investigative Reporting, and I encourage all to check it out. Patrick covers immigration. Previously, among other students, he's a staff writer at the Texas Observer and the Dallas Observer, where he combined feature writing with audio and video production. In Texas, he investigated the state's broken adult guardian system and co-wrote an investigation into corruption at the Department of Homeland Security. In 2013, he was, congratulations, a Livingston Award finalist for his investigation into the deadly armored car industry. He earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from Northwestern University and his master's in photojournalism from the University of Texas at Austin. There, his work focused on government contractors grappling with trauma and injuries from Iraq. Patrick comes to us today from Alameda County, that's in the Oakland area, and I'd like to welcome you to the to Ask a Leader, Patrick Michaels. Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me on. It's great to be here. Well, the 
Theo Lacey Jail Facility is a maximum security facility. And, you know, I guess I have a little snark here to get out of the way. Did you know that, Patrick, that there are postings on Yelp about this detention center? Isn't that amazing? I always I love those for jail, just kind of uh, <laughs> wondering who's got the best Yelp reviews among detention centers. But Theo Lacey's, if I'm uh, remembering right, are not very good <laughs> Yelp ratings. So uh, I guess there's social media providing uh, some kind of public goods in terms of maybe some kind of transparency. Well, Orange County is n- now where we are. It speaks a great deal about where we are now. It's, it's where it sprung. Could you give us a little history of establishing this facility? And folks, we're taking Patrick, having him take us back to 1892. This is something that I uh, I thought would just be a, a fun way to sort of set the stage for, for what is happening in Orange County today is to, to look at where, you know, how it got to, to where it is now. Um, fun for so some. I'm, <laughs> so I'm recently returned to California. I grew up in the, in the, the Bay Area. And I only knew Orange County sort of as a, as a wealthy, conservative, uh, you know, suburban place near L.A. And I, you know, I sort of knew and internalized this idea that it's a law and order place with some tough sheriffs. And um, so this is my introduction to some of that history. Um, and it really goes back to the 30s in some labor strife. And basically a, a couple of years that Gustavo Ariano at OC Weekly has referred yes. to as the, the Citrus Wars. Um, it's a fascinating period that, you know, was basically a, a time when, uh, in a labor dispute between the white farmers and the Mexican workers, the sheriff intervened. His name is Logan Jackson. And he actually deputized some workers, some, some security guards who were hired by the farmers to arrest the striking farm workers, even to beat them. And they called immigration authorities to try and deport folks uh, who were protesting for higher wages even back then. Uh, and there was a lot of violence on both sides. Uh, and it really, you know, as Ariano argues in his uh, story in OC Weekly from about 10 years ago, he, he describes how it sort of sets the stage for this uh, standoff and, and the, the idea that Orange County uh, officials are, are doing the work of the you know, wealthy, you know, white farming you know, class in sort of in opposition to, uh, to the immigrant communities. So we fast forward then to where the, I, I don't want to call it a junket, but it's a, it's a really, a very, uh, well, it's a heady kind of enterprise. Here we have approximately 250,000 undocumented residents in Orange County. And so we have the Theo Lacey facility that is receiving from Orange County and from out of the, the area, out of the county, out of the state for some of them? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the, uh, it, it's the Theo Lacey facility, the maximum security. And then there's a, uh, another jail called the James Music facility. Right here in Irvine, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that one they call the farm. It's, it's sort of the, you know, the club med of uh, Orange County detention centers. But there's no real rhyme or reason that anyone I've talked to can tell as to how you end up in one of these detention centers. If you're, you're sent there by ICE, once you're in the Orange County Sheriff's Department system, they decide which of the two jails you go to. But it's up to ICE whether you go there or whether you go to Adelanto out in the desert a little ways or to really to any other detention center around the country that they've got. ICE makes these decisions on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes you end up near your family in Orange County. Uh, and sometimes your family's in Houston, but you get sent to Southern California for no reason you can tell. Okay. 
For those of you who've just joined us, we're talking with Center for Investigative Reporter, Reveal Reporter, Patrick Michaels here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We're talking about Orange County with the Theo Lacey facility is detaining innumerable, when, and I mean that, we're, we're actually, it's a class of its own that compared with Sacramento and Contra Costa and Yuba counties that are holding about 100 to 200 people, Orange County's contract allows for 958 detainees. So why don't you talk about what's in it for the county? There is, there's a political aspect, there's an ideological, there's a cultural, and there's a financial. So you Pick the political, as you've talked a little bit about the kind of frontier, land-barren sort of relationship with the, with the penal institutions here. But let's break down all of those, the political, ideological, cultural, and then finally the financial reasons for what Orange County's doing with especially the Theo Lacey facility. Well, let's start with the, the last one because it's the simplest. The money yeah. is, is a huge incentive the county to participate in this program with ICE. Uh, you know, most other counties, as you mentioned, there are a few others in the state that, that will contract with ICE to detain people because because ICE doesn't run its own jail. So they need partnerships. They either need private companies or local government to, to house people for them. Um, most local governments in California have decided they don't want any part of this, but there are a few, and Orange County is, is the you know, biggest among them, that have decided it's worth the money to them. Um, they get, it varies from county to county, but Orange County gets $118 per day per detainee. Uh, and since 2010, when their uh, contract with ICE began, they've, uh, well, by the end of the year, from 2010 till now, they will have made a quarter billion dollars off of this uh, deal. Wow. So you can imagine, you know, and that translates directly to uh, increased pay for, for your deputies, to hiring more law enforcement officers, to hiring, you know, to buying new equipment. Uh, Wait, one, one, moment, one moment. The increased pay, you mentioned in your article over the, I'm not sure, over the last three or four years, that's like an 8.5 wage increase for the detention workers, which isn't yeah, happening elsewhere. Yeah, they got a recent raise just in the last few years, and, and the amount they, they get translates, you know, it, it's almost exactly equal to... To, to what the detention contract is worth in, in one year to the county. So, as you know, as the as Sheriff Sandra Hutchins has, has argued against the state's efforts to prevent more detention contracts like hers, uh, she says that, you know, one of the reasons why we need this is because, you know, without the money from the federal government, we'll have to lay off people, we'll have to you know, stop buying the top-of-the-line equipment. So her argument is that she needs this money in order to, to do her job of protecting the, the county. But the, for the people that are not, not the ones that are filing the Yelp postings, but actually Homeland Security themselves investigating some of the conditions are finding that the conditions are pretty grim there with the food and the, the actual maintenance of the building and it's the, the utilities around there. They're not, they're not uh, faring very well. Yeah, this jail has gotten a lot of criticism from, from advocacy groups on just about you know, since the moment it began uh, taking immig immigration detainees. And, uh, you know, that's been happening over years. There have been reports from the local ACLU and from other groups. Civic uh, is another, another advocacy yes. group that's been very active. Right. But this one was last November on a sort of a surprise visit. You know, sometimes they'll announce that they're coming. And uh, this one was a surprise visit from the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General Office. And they, they showed up and they took a tour of the immigration detention centers because, after all, this is 
you know, this is a, a contract that right. they have with the sheriff. So they want to be, be sure they're getting their money's worth, right, from the, the local county. And they found things like uh, like broken telephones, uh, which is, you know, in, very inconvenient, right, if you're trying to, like, talk to your family or your lawyer, and that's your only way of, uh, of reaching them. Uh, moldy showers, lifeline. trash in the cells, uh, lunch meat that was spoiled. Uh, they, they found that, you know, they interviewed people who told them that, the only way they'd get to eat their their lunch was if they you know they they had to rinse it off with water, rinse the meat off with water yeah, before they could the even sandwich. stomach it because it was so yeah. so nasty. Yeah. So it was this really damning report. It was made public in March, and uh, you know you'd you'd think that uh, that would be a, a cause for concern. Maybe the ICE would you know rethink its contract, but instead they actually re-upped their deal and expanded it, and they they uh, made it worth even five million dollars more to the county after that. So I guess that's. This is where the rubber hits the road kind of a fact that when we're being so thrown by so many breaking policy upheavals, breaking news all the time, we can't pay attention to these things that are happening in our backyard that are just not right. It's a it's a fiscal drain and it's a it's a human rights transgression. So it's sort of like we have so much to keep track of. And so and these important local stories are missed by all of us. I missed it completely. I think that, um, you know, arrangements like this between the detention contracts and this, this other arrangement that Orange County has where the, some of their officers are deputized as ICE agents, you know, they're the only county in the state that has this formal arrangement with ICE, dozens of them around the country, but this is the only one in California. You know, this is one way where you can really see the, the connections between, you know, federal policy and, and how local officials uh, work with those, and, and a lot of times you'll see, you know, sort of taking advantage of, of the situation, like um, doubling down on detention contracts to bring more money to the county. Um, that's something that might not have been possible, you know, years and years ago. But under the Obama administration, and especially under the Trump administration, you know, detention is very big business, and it's just getting bigger. So, in terms of the county lining up this kind of enterprise, I mean, I'm going to call it enterprise because there's so much. There's money being made and people benefiting from this enterprise, you know, winners and losers, as you're talking about. So whose call is it? Is it the sheriff's office? Is it the county board of supervisors? Because they're they all they're they're part of the whole this political kind of portfolio. Mm-hmm. It's the county supervisors. They're the ones who, who approved that expanded deal um, just earlier this year. Under the new state law, you know, obviously the state lawmakers have taken a pretty different approach, and, and they're trying yes. to rein in the Trump administration's um, you know, deportation efforts. Uh, and so SB 54, the California Values Act that the governor just signed earlier this month, it's, it's the most recent in a you know a few years worth of efforts by state lawmakers to curtail this kind of detention agreement and other partnerships between local cops and ICE. So. You know, in Sacramento, these efforts have, have been paying off. But there's also there, there you know, we saw with the, the last law that just passed that there was a lot of negotiation and, uh, you know, attempts to weaken the, the law that, you know, were pretty successful in the end. Um, it, it changed a lot from, from its original intent. So there are local and state-level battlegrounds, you know, for these, these policies. And this you're referring to is that, among others, this Senate Bill 54, which Governor Brown signed into law on October 5th, and it's, I guess, it, it, what it, how it becomes effective immediately is that it draws the line when some of these contracts can no longer be extended past. So 20, 2020 is the 
end of the contract that won't be renewed at in the Orange County penal facilities? It's a little bit. I mean, I, you know, maybe you know this better than I no, do. No, no, no. You're the, the one who knows. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a little bit unclear still exactly how it'll oh. work. For sure, uh, it, there there will be no expansion of, of those contracts. Um, but from the folks that I talked to at the Capitol, it, it sounds as though what's in place right now will be allowed to continue. Uh, and and so even even continuing it past 2020, I believe is, oh, is really? something they'll be able to do. Um, but it's not entirely certain how it'll go. And a county like Orange County could fight that. You know, if, if the state lawmakers decide that it's their intent, that that contract ends at 2020, I don't believe that that's what the sheriff's department believes. Uh, so there could be a fight over that when, when that comes out. And it's also uh, the intent of the lawmakers to end this partnership between ICE and the sheriff's department, where the sheriff's you know deputies are operating as ICE officers in the jail. Uh, I haven't gotten a clear answer from the sheriff's department whether that's something that they you know plan on playing along with or if they're going to fight that uh, on that technicality in the law. Um, so that, that's not expressly addressed in the letter of the law. So there, there's still a little bit of uncertainty. The biggest thing with uh, the, the sanctuary law that the, the legislature just passed is that you know it provides a lot of puts a lot of limits onto how ICE can you know, have access to detainees in yes. local jails. Um, and after all, that's the the top way that somebody ends up in ICE detention is is coming in through local jails and sort of getting flagged by ICE uh, and and getting arrested from there. But there are hundreds of exceptions to to that protection, uh, where if you're if, if you committed any number of uh, serious crimes and some not so serious, that that you're exempt from the law and ICE has just as much access to you in California as they would in any other state. And so that's the concern, is that if ICE has this kind of access to the detainees on the sliding scale, and you can, and would you talk to us about, it's the call, whose call is it that is, it's, I guess it's, it's the federal jurisdiction that determines what are considered the serious crimes that require detention of these undocumented residents. Well, that's true. There, there are certain crimes where if, if you've been convicted of those and you end up in ICE custody, um, you can't be paroled uh, under federal law if, if you have one of these on your record. So there's a separate issue of, you know, what, what crimes are, you know, above the bar for the state to say that ICE can, can come and get you. Yes. You know, if, you, if you're in a local jail. And so in Orange County, the way that that's played out is, you know, in the last few years, since the state has, has put a limit on, on, you know, what crimes, you know, you have to have committed before you can be handed over to ICE, there, there are certain things, and the sheriff in Orange County likes to, you know, she, she lists them. She says there's homicide, rape, possession of weapons, driving under the influence. She lists these serious crimes that if, if you've committed one of those, then the Orange County Sheriff's Department will hold you um, so that ICE can come arrest you. There's a list of hundreds of these of these things, and what we've seen. This is something we haven't published yet, but we're working on. Okay, that, here, here's our scoop. <laughs> um, is that uh, you know that just has to be on your record. You can be you can have been arrested for any number of things. Things like uh, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, it's joyriding or uh, loitering or uh, possession of some drug paraphernalia. Anything that lands you in the jail, if you if you've got something more serious on that list. Uh, on your record, 
as long as you've got something on your record in the past, then, then the sheriff's department can hold you. So there are, you know, all kinds of ways you can end up in the jail in the first place, uh, and then you're fair game uh, for ICE to pick up. So the dangerous offenses go are really sliding scale that would anybody with documentation wouldn't think twice about getting off the hook for that. But if you are an undocumented person, you have a whole different array of you have a different it's a different threshold for how how you're deemed a dangerous offender and where you are then uh, you'll you could be deported as a result for that yeah. light yeah. offense i think that that's fair to say um you know the one other thing i, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd mention that we yes. get into in our story in a bit is is the city of santa Ana, where some local activists there and these are these are typically young young folks who who sort of got their political start fighting for the DREAM Act a few years ago, right. um, and are often dreamers themselves, have really made a lot of headway in the local government in Santa Ana. And if they've gotten the sanctuary ordinance passed there, which they say is the strongest in the country. It is? Um, wow. And it's it's specifically because it doesn't have these carve-outs that we've been talking about that the okay. state law has. And their argument is basically that everybody should be treated equally under the law, that even if you're con- convicted of one of these very serious crimes, you know, the, the law has punishment that it lays out for you, and that's what's fair, and that deportation shouldn't be something that enters into that. Uh, and that's very different from the sheriff's approach in Orange County. So, and, and the carve-outs that you were mentioning, the different ways of designating what a, an actual uh, harmful, a dangerous offense is, I guess that was, that was the horse trading that had to happen in Sacramento to get SB 54 out the door and before the governor. Yeah, and that came from the governor's office in a, in a lot of ways. And uh, I think there were some reports that that, that followed some um, meetings between the governor and President Trump. So it sort of, you know, it, it complicates this image of, of Governor Brown as sort of the, uh, you know, the, the attack dog on the other side of the, the line from, from the president. There actually was a lot of negotiation going on here behind the scenes. Well, there's some very excellent investigative reporting going on. I mean, you're, you're at the Center for Investigative Reporting. There's so much good work you're doing on various detentions in the country. And, and the other outlets in investigative reporting are checking into the fact that detainees are being pressed into slave labor. Is there any of that going on at Theo Lacey Jail facility? I, I, the answer is I, I believe that's the case. Uh, I've seen in the contract that it includes a uh, dollar a day payment for detainees there. For what uh, kind? And that's to do things like like clean up your cell, basically. You know, the moldy showers that um, that the, the government report found in, in Theo Lacey. You know, the, the sheriff's department's answer to that was that well, you know, it's the detainees' job to clean up their their cells, and you know, they weren't doing it. So here's what you get. So and that's pretty standard practice for, for detention centers across the country. That their contracts will include, you know, provision for the detainees to work for a dollar a day, and that's the, the national standard. Uh, for and it, it's basic upkeep around the jail stuff that saves you know the operators money on hiring janitors to do. So that's the savings in Orange County with the contract it has with the feds, that slave labor. So, um, but is there any other kind of uh, manufacturing sector that they're being farmed in or farmed out to be doing there, like we've been hearing about at other detention centers around the country, especially in the South. It's not something that I've heard of, so I, I, I could be wrong. But you know, as, as far as I understand it, the, the work that they're doing in the detention uh, is limited to sort of general upkeep around the around the jail. So I guess in wrapping up, Patrick, if you could 
tell us where we're headed with what's going on with the what the sheriff's county board of supervisors political direction their definitions and their the parameters they're working with and the city of Santa Ana's raising the bar with how the detainees are handled raising it in terms of protections or you said was the best sanctuary ordinance in the country how do you see those reconciled because it's theolacy well it's the theolacy's in the city of orange but Santa Ana's the county seat where the sheriff's office is located and all that how do you see those two different kinds of thresholds being reconciled in what happens with detainees in Orange County. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating time. And for the first time in, in a decade, it looks like, you know, well, I mean, the, the county will be getting a new sheriff here uh, at the end of next year. Yes. Uh, because Sandra Hutchins is stepping down. Uh, so, you know, I, I haven't seen of the folks who are lining up uh, to replace her. It doesn't look as though there's a big, uh, you know, this will be a big watershed moment for you know, a new direction in the sheriff's department, at least in terms of, at least limited to what we're talking about in, in immigration policy. But Santa Ana, you know, possibly Anaheim, there's movements for other sanctuary ordinances uh, in, in some cities, you know, especially northern Orange County, that could create some change. You know, at this point, uh, I think the Board of Supervisors' decision uh, to you know, expand that contract with ICE earlier this year, I think it was unanimous. So there's not a big split right now on the county leadership. And at the same time, there are anti-immigration advocates, you know, uh, who, who have been emboldened under President Trump, who are, right. are getting more and more active, who will definitely be on, on board to push back on any local sanctuary movement. So um, it's a really interesting microcosm for the state uh, and the, really the country as a whole. Okay, so everybody's got lots of assignments now. We've got multi-jurisdictional attention spans. We've got to keep on here. So I really want to thank you, Patrick Michaels, just not, not only for your time today, but for the rigor in your investigative reporting and all the work that gets done over there at Reveal in the Center for Investigative Reporting. Thanks for being on today's Ask a Leader. Claudia, thank you so much. It was great. So that was Patrick Michaels with the Center for Investigative Reporting and Reveal, talking about what kind of a hot mess it is over at the Theo Lacey Jail Facility. So before next week, this weekend, I'm going to go to the California GOP Convention in Anaheim. Steve Bannon Friday night and Grover Norquist, Kevin McCarthy, and others on Saturday. We'll see if any one of them wants to join me next week on the show. What I won't do for you listeners. Thank you for listening, everyone. Tonight